hear now these hope-filled and encouraging words from the book of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. My name is Dave Page. I am, uh, for those I don't know, I'm one of the elders here at Trinity, and I get the, the privilege of being with you uh, today as James and several of the other guys are, are traveling back from the mancation, full of bacon, I assume. Um, so this morning, we're in the fifth week of this series called Unleashing Hope, which is based on Ray Johnson's book, The Hope Quotient. And we're looking at ways that we can instill hope in our own lives. Um, and, and one of the premises of the book is that thriving people thrive for, for a, a, one main reason, that they commit to things that produce inner strength and hope in their lives. In week one, we talked about the importance of, of recharging our batteries and how we can tap into God's promise in the book of Isaiah <clears throat> that those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. In week two, we, we looked at the need to raise our expectations and how we can shift from living uh, out of fear towards living out of faith and embracing the reality that we follow a God who, who can do the impossible. In week three, we talked about refocusing on the future um, and how no one ever moves forward well when they're, when they're looking back. Oswald Chambers said, um, I, I like this quote, be, beware of spending too much time looking back at what's, what you once were when God wants you to become something you have never been. And last week, uh, in week four, James walked us through uh, playing to our strengths. Um, and we talked about identifying and developing the unique spiritual gifts that God has, has given to each one of us as followers of Jesus. Because God has, has equipped each of us to play a unique role in his kingdom, and we're most effective and joyful when we operate out of that capacity. And so today we're going to look at, at the, the value of significant relationships as a source of hope in our lives. We're going to look at, at why we need them, why they're critical, what they look like, and, and how we can put it all into action. To set a bit of, of context for part of the why, I want to dial back a few years um, to when the elders and the trustees had asked a, uh, a team of consultants to come in and to, to do an independent assessment of, of Trinity, kind of current state, uh, what was working well and, and what were some of the areas uh, where we needed to improve. And one of the key findings that came out of that uh, specifically pertained to, to attendance and retention and growth. And one of the interesting things that they found was um, Trinity had, had a large number of congregants that had been, uh, been here for six or more years. And then on the other spectrum, we had a large number of people that were coming in the door. We didn't have a problem attracting newcomers. Um, people would really be energized in that first like six to 12 months. But the data suggested that Trinity was losing people somewhere, and, and I would maybe offer is still losing people somewhere in that one to five year range. And so, of course, our, our question was why? What, what was driving that trend? And when, when they interviewed a few of the people who had been here for, uh, 
who, who were more of the long-tenured folks, they said one of the key reasons that they stuck around was that they had found, they had found relationship in this community. That was a key distinctive about Trinity for them. And then on the contrary, when they assess, uh, when they talk to those folks that, that were leaving the church and, and kind of some of the key drivers there, um, one of those key drivers was they had, a difficult, uh, they had difficulty connecting relationally with the community around them. And so I think this tells me one of the things that we already anecdotally know is that when people are looking for a community of faith, they, they want a true community. So, in order for me to deliver this message with any integrity, I first have to confess that I'm just not really a big fan of this stuff. And, and I'll, I'll explain why. It, it's just, it's not really my cup of tea. So, I'm, I'm very introverted. Um, and, and I use introvert with the definition of talking to people, interacting with people exhausts me. Um, I mean, to be, to be really honest, I would rather sit in a dark closet alone than have to walk into a party and ha where I have to make conversation with people, honestly. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't like people, and it doesn't mean that I'm not intentional about it, and you don't have to be scared to talk to me down at coffee hour. <laughs> but, but it's just me being honest that this is, this is a challenge for me. That being said, I am completely convinced that God designed each one of us to be in deep community with fellow believers, whether it's comfortable or not. And that disengaging from that or, or trying to walk out our faith alone is not only missing out on the abundant life that God has for us, but it actually puts us at risk of going off track with no one in, in our circle to, to call us out. And so as is um, often the case, I've actually spoken on this topic a couple times in the few uh, sermons that I've given, so um, this is as much for me as anybody. So let's get rolling. Um, let's start with a little social science. There's a guy named Robert Putnam, and he is a professor of public policy at Harvard. And he's done a lot of um, very influential studies and analyses on social relationships. And one of the things he, that he's found is the single most common finding from a half-century's research on the correlates uh, of life satisfaction, not only in the U.S., but around the globe, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. And he, he talks about one of the best examples being a guy named Winston Churchill. Um, and he was a, a prime minister during the World War II era, era for those that... Um, like myself, who have forgotten much of world history. Um, Winston Churchill, had he connected deeply with, with a lot of people in his vicinity. He had a, a strong marriage, strong family relationships, and a lot of close friends, as well as a large number of, of successful interactions at work. On the flip side, he had terrible habits. He smoked cigars all the time, drank too much, had an unhealthy diet, had bizarre sleep habits, and never worked out. He lived to be 90 years old. And when, and when his doctor asked him why he never exercised, Churchill is, is said to have replied, I get all the exercise I need being a pallbearer for all my friends who run and do exercises. <laughs> when we look to scriptures for, for examples of healthy Christian community, there's a, there's a scene in Acts 2 that really 
demonstrates the critical ingredients of how the early church operated as, as this community. In Acts 2, uh, towards the end of the chapter, it reads, uh, in reference to the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praised God, and enjoyed the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in just those six verses, there are four references to these believers being in, in community. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. All the believers were together. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together. These were clearly not people who only saw each other on Sundays. They were described as having glad and sincere hearts, praising God and having goodwill with the larger population of, of people around them. These were, these were believers who banded together and prioritized being in deep community with one another. And not only did this choice to, to do life together yield joy and, and growth amongst their, their group of believers, but through it, the Lord actually drew more people to follow Jesus because it was so attractive. This passage continues to, to build the case for why relationships are vital. That God intends the body to be together and invested in one another. So this Acts 2 church gives us a, a kind of 30,000 foot view of what this community looks like, but um, it's, it's, it's very high level. And so I was thinking, practically speaking, what does this mean for, for me, for us at Trinity, especially in a city uh, like New York, where um, there are a lot of barriers to fellowship that, that fly up. So I learn best by seeing examples. Um, I, I like to kind of observe something, kind of reverse engineer it in my head and figure out how I can put it into practice. And thankfully, uh, Jesus did this whole community thing pretty well. And so um, we can see throughout the Gospels that while Jesus spent a, a lot of time interacting with, with crowds and with um, kind of one-off individuals that, that we don't really see again, he also invested an incredible amount of time in his, his band of brothers, his, his disciples. In, in the book, The Hope Quotient, the author identifies several components of significant friendships that are key for maintaining a high level of hope, and, and I would actually argue are key for spurring spiritual growth in ourselves and others. And what I've tried to do is corral them into three concepts that I'm going to call relational hope catalysts, um, and we're going to try to look at how Jesus put those into practice. So the first of these three catalysts is what we're going to call soul sharpening. Proverbs 27:17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. To help us grow spiritually in our knowledge of the Bible, in our prayer lives, in the various spiritual disciplines, we, we need to be learning from, we need to be sharpened by those that are more experienced than ourselves. I remember when I, uh, my brothers and I were playing soccer as young kids, my dad would constantly kind of push us to play with kids that were better than us, older than us. And it wasn't really fun because a lot of times they would just run circles around us. Um, but by, by being in that environment with people at, people at a higher skill level than yourself, 
you are naturally inclined to raise the bar and to, to strive harder and to acquire those skills at a, at a quicker pace. And we see something similar, um, Jesus challenging the disciples in, in Luke 11.1. 1. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. In this scene, this disciple observed Jesus and recognized that there was something that he and the rest of his guys were, were lacking, that they had a skill that they could hone better. And so he asked Jesus to, to teach them what they hadn't known before. When I think about how this has played out in my, my spiritual walk, I think to the, the many years that I spent up in classroom BC on Tuesday nights uh, listening to a guy named Chuck Frank teach the Old Testament. And he's actually teaching it at the, the men's retreat right now. Um, this was a guy that, that could take verse by verse in, in Old Testament books and, and unpack it and make it relevant to my life and reveal truth to me that I otherwise wouldn't have known. And he did that with a purpose, not just, to, not just for head knowledge, but he intended to strengthen the spiritual lives of the men in that room. And, and I, would, I would offer that he did. If we want to more fully understand the hope that we have in Jesus, we need to be engaging, engaging with these soul-sharpening individuals uh, who can teach and mentor us as we mature in our walk with Jesus. The second uh, relational hope catalyst is, is what we're going to call heart healing. Because there are going to be times when we... Excuse me. <clears throat> there are going to be times when we all suffer, suffer from hearts that are broken or cynical or hardened or discouraged. We're all going to have episodes in our lives where we're, we're feeling despair. Um, people of hope suffer these things just like everybody else. But people of hope will surround themselves with these um, people who have the kind of the skills of heart healing um, and they'll bring them into their circle because they know that it will benefit them as they walk through these, these episodes. In the last week of Jesus' life, he, he devoted many of his words to preparing the disciples for what was about to come. Specifically, he offered support and encouragement to them through several key verses in the book of John. And these come during the Last Supper. In John 14, 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, so also believe in me. Very comforting words for guys who will look back on that um, when they're going through the, the challenge of losing Jesus. And a little later in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus masterfully recognized when those around him were in need of a boost. Two of the, the gifts of the Spirit that James talked about last week were, uh, were mercy and encouragement. And if, if you're like me, um, those are not your primary giftings. Um, but we can still be an encourager, a, a comforter, a supporter to those that are around us. We're called to bear each other's burdens. I remember getting a call a few years ago from a friend um, who just kind of like rocked my world when he... he confessed to me that he had been um, battling a, an addiction in, in secret, and it had kind of come to a head, and he, he needed some guys around him to help him walk through that. Um, 
I was completely unequipped for it. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't trained in, in that type of counseling or anything, but thankfully I wasn't alone. And, and all I ended up doing was being present and, and offering words of encouragement and praying for him. And I can just tell you that, that through that time, our friendship and our relationship was forged. Uh, I, I would offer that ministering to our, our brothers and sisters in their times of need can offer incredible fruit out of, out of those dark times. The third uh, relational hope catalyst is, um, is maybe the most fun. It's referred to as tail kicking. Um, and as it sounds, it can be rather uncomfortable. Proverbs 20, 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Um, the, the author says it this way, If the task of some people is to comfort the afflicted, then the task of tail kickers is to afflict the comfortable. See, God uses, uses these experiences, these people, to move us forward, to propel us out of, um, out of settling, out of um, stages where we're, we're stagnant. He uses them to challenge us to grow in spiritual maturity, um, but that's often done through challenging, challenging uh, circumstances or difficult situations. Jesus did this often and consistently with the disciples. Um, one of the, the very succinct examples is in, in Luke 9, um, where there was an argument bubbling up heaven. Um, these guys really hadn't, hadn't quite gotten it yet, but, but Jesus came alongside them, and, and he talks about whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And, and he, he turns um, the truth that they thought they knew into, uh, into real truth when he talks about whoever is least among you will be the greatest. See, Jesus could see that the disciples were heading down a, a dangerous path, and, and even when they didn't realize it, he, he stepped in to share truth and bring them back on, onto that narrow path. And, and this is the crux of, of a passage in Hebrews 10 that talks about spurring one another on to loving good deeds. That's, that's what we're called to do when we're in Christian community, and, and this is a struggle for, for many of us. And it's often a place where even well-intended Christians become avoidant, not wanting to stir the pot, not wanting to cause conflict. Um, we imagine anything that we could say might do more harm or speak into to anybody else's life. But I want us to hear this today, that if we desire to grow as followers of Jesus, and if we desire to help others mature in their walks, we must be able to, to wisely discern and then give and receive wise, corrective, tail-kicking feedback. A couple years ago when I was asked to serve on the, the elder board, um, I went through a kind of a vetting process with the, the five guys at that time. And one of the questions that they asked me uh, during my interview was if I had any grievance with anybody. And I initially said no, and, and that, was, that was truthful, um, or, or so I thought. But during the course of that conversation, it, you know, the Lord kind of convicted me that I had been harboring some resentment against an individual um, because of the outcome of, of some events. And I, I rationalized that because there was no ill will or, um, or bad intentions, that there was really no reason to you know, deal, you know, say anything to deal with it, to approach it. And so it had kind of been just kind of sitting with me. But the guys around that table said, no, that, that's, that's not okay. 
Um, you, have, you have broken a relationship where reconciliation has not been pursued, and that's not okay for any follower of Jesus, much less an elder. And so you need to go to that person and have a conversation. I didn't really want to do that, but um, it's not comfortable. It's not easy. But the fruit that, that was bore from that, it was, was pretty tremendous. I, I went and I had a conversation, and, you know, it went well. And, and I grew from that, acknowledging that I can't, just, I can't just sweep things under the rug. We've got to bring things to light and, and address them because we're called to something higher. And I'm grateful for the guys that were in that room that could speak that truth into my life, as uncomfortable as it was. Taken in, in aggregate, I see these three catalysts as instilling greater hope through our relationships because they, they help transform us more into the image of who Jesus is. And so, by definition, these are key ingredients to what we would call a discipleship process. When I think about Jesus and his disciples and, and the circumstances that enabled these interactions, it was ultimately predicated upon a foundation of, of deep friendship. Um, one of our elders, I think, estimated one time that over the course of his, um, his three years on earth, Jesus spent like 10,000 hours with his, his disciples. Um, and so you're going to have really close relationship. I'm not saying we have to spend 10,000 hours with anybody. I, I don't want to go there. Um, but but that, that time that he invested um, allowed fertile ground for, for these more challenging conversations to occur. And I mean, and I think we know the same prerequisite is there for us. Like, I, I'm skeptical that any of us would sit down with a stranger and want to have in-depth conversations or, or engage at a level of significant intimacy. But an established relational environment does provide the foundation for these catalysts to occur. And I think that's important to understand. When you think about the relationships in your life, are any of these three catalysts present? Let me ask the, the question a different way. What are we seeking to get out of our community? What's the strategic objective? Surely, as we saw in that Acts 2 church, there's joy to be had as they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. But if our goals and expectations for this Christ-centered community are capped at fellowship and social interaction, then we're selling ourselves and, and each other short. We're not fully embracing what God, what God has intended um, through these relationships. The, the core of Trinity's mission statement is, is to make disciples. Um, and the elders have spent considerable time uh, over the years discussing how we might be able to, to foster more intentional and, and effective discipleship here at Trinity. Um, you know, in layman's terms, how do we spur one another on to be more like Jesus uh, consistently in thought, word, and deed? And so while there's, um, while there's definitely no silver bullet for, for making disciples, when you look at how Jesus accomplished it with his band of brothers, it's, it's in this small group dynamic where a relationship, relational environment defined by authenticity, encouragement, and accountability really sets the groundwork for this, this discipleship to occur. Over the past several months, the elders have been working through 
a book called uh, Disciple Shift um, with a small group of pilot leaders. And one of the major premises that emerges from that, that book emphasizes this point, that the world's need for relationships is God's opportunity to build disciples because a relational environment is the vehicle best suited for that discipleship. That principle was, was one of the contributing factors to um, trying to orchestrate small groups to meet on Sunday. Um, and I'm expectant that uh, as we continue to work through this series, there'll be additional revelations from, from God that we'll, we'll work to put in practice as we try to do this better. So beyond my introverted nature, I, I, do, I do strive to be intentional about cultivating that, that community. I don't always succeed. Because I'll be the first to, to admit that I, I also kind of downplay the, the significance of it sometimes. I, I often consider it kind of an optional or, you know, in your Amazon card, it would be an add, add-on, right? <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it's not only God's desire for his children to be in close community, because that's how he's designed us. Jesus has clearly laid out that being in a relational community with other believers is a non-negotiable priority if we want to grow and help others grow more into the image of Christ. And so I'd like to challenge you, what, what's one step that you can take this week to either begin or continue building the community that God intends for you to be in? Maybe it's, it's reaching out to somebody in your small group or your, your Sunday circle of friends during the week. Just a note to say, hey, how you doing? Or, or do you want to grab coffee and, and catch up? Maybe, maybe you are already in, in deep fellowship with somebody and there's a word on your heart that has been challenging to get out, but you feel like for, for their walk, it needs to be said that you need to speak some truth in love. Or, or maybe it's just investing in, in trying to build that relational foundation and, and going up to somebody new in the fellowship hall and, and you know, learning a name and, you know, building a, building a bridge. Let me close with a perspective from uh, the psychologist Larry Crabb. Uh, he wrote the, the book The Marriage Builder, which I also highly recommend. Um, <clears throat> but he says, the core battle in everyone's life is to relate well to God, to worship him, enjoy him, experience his presence, hear his voice, trust him in everything, always call him good, obey every command, even the hard ones, and hope in him, whenever, and hope in him when he seems to disappear. Crab concluded, that's the battle the community of God is called to enter in each other's lives. That's a battle I cannot win alone. I need a community that is waging the same war to include me in that fight. None of us can win the battle alone, and God didn't design us to win it alone. We win the lifelong battle to stay encouraged and hold on to hope only as we join others who need our help to win their battles as well. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are with us, that we are never alone because you are with us. And Lord, I thank you that you have designed us to, to interact with each other, to build each other up, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, Father. 
It's not always comfortable. But Lord, you know it's for our good. And if we want to be more like you, Lord, equip us to speak truth and love, to support and encourage each other well, and to do community the way that you have designed us to. Jesus, we love you. Amen.